China says it had no intention of violating U.S. airspace after reports that a Chinese spy balloon was flying over sensitive sites out west. It's Friday, February 3rd. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, a preview of today's latest jobs report. Forecasters think employment has remained steady because of an expected economic rebound. I think what has happened is uh, companies have decided let's not lay them off. It's going to be too hard to get them back, and then we're going to miss the upside in the second half. Also this hour, we talk with Boston's outgoing senior advisor for public safety on how crime and gun violence in the city have changed. We're seeing guns with high capacity magazines, guns that have the potential to inflict a lot of damage. And the biggest concerns parents have for their kids' mental health. Sunny with temperatures falling to near zero by sunset. Wind chills overnight could hit 30 below. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. China says it's examining reports that a surveillance balloon is flying over the continental United States. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder says the flying orb is not a danger. It's currently traveling at an altitude well above commercial air traffic and does not present a military or physical threat to people on the ground. Instances of this kind of balloon activity have been observed previously over the past several years. A senior defense official says the Pentagon has been tracking the balloon for a few days and has high confidence that it came from China. National security officials debated whether to shoot it down, but they decided against it. They say it does not appear to pose a security threat and cannot collect information beyond what could be gathered by a satellite. Forecasters say a blast of Arctic air is sweeping in over parts of the northeast. Dangerously cold winds are expected to spark wind chills far below zero. Mount Washington in New Hampshire's White Mountains is home to what's considered the worst weather in the world. And this weekend won't be an exception. From member station WBUR, Samantha Kutsia has more. Temperatures could get as low as 50 degrees below zero on the summit, setting a new record. With wind chill, forecasters say it will feel anywhere between 100 and 110 degrees below zero. Francis Terazowitz is a meteorologist at the Mount Washington Observatory. Exposed skin will become frostbitten in less than a minute. And then even on the warmer end of things, say if the winds were closer to 80 miles per hour and the lows only got down to 30 degrees below zero, frostbite would be expected within five minutes or so. The White Mountains are a popular tourist destination, but Terazowitz says this isn't the weekend to be heading up there. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Kutsia. President Biden has been traveling up and down the East Coast this week to discuss projects funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law and his administration. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports today he'll visit Philadelphia to announce major funding for water upgrades. President Biden and Vice President Harris will visit the Belmont Water Treatment Plant and announce $500 million to upgrade Philadelphia's water facilities and replace nearly 20 miles of lead service lines. It's part of a broader goal to replace all lead service lines in the country within the next decade. $160 million of the investment will come through the bipartisan infrastructure law, which Biden signed in 2021. The rest comes via a loan from the Environmental Protection Agency. Biden made similar visits to Baltimore and New York earlier this week to announce other major investments, part of a victory lap he's taking for steering federal funding to infrastructure projects. Barbara Sprint and Pure News, Philadelphia. While he's in Philadelphia today, Biden will also attend a meeting of the Democratic National Committee. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. As you just heard, we need to prepare for cold weather like we haven't experienced since 2016. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says temperatures are falling this morning and it's just going to keep getting colder. The temperatures continue to tumble and the wind chill is going to bottom out 20 to 30 below zero by this evening and last until about midday tomorrow. That's the dangerous stuff where you can get frostbite in as little as 15 or 30 minutes. The overnight low tonight, minus six in Boston, that would break a record high of only 16 tomorrow, but it's a huge rebound by Sunday. Highs are going to be in the mid 40s and will be in the 40s for most of next week. School is canceled today in Boston, Worcester, Framingham and other communities because of the extreme weather. This is a dangerous time for people who live on the street, so Boston's largest shelter is preparing to help. WBUR's Irina Machvariani reports. The Pine Street Inn in Boston South End has cots, mats and blankets ready. Workers expect the shelter will be filled beyond its usual capacity of 500 beds. Pine Street spokesperson Barbara Trevison says people without homes are in distress and often refuse to spend nights in the shelter. So she's asking people to help however they can. Socks are something that we always need, um, even things like hats and gloves. And then if people do see somebody in distress on the streets, we ask them to call 911. Outreach teams will be out all night to try and convince people to come to the shelter. At the very least, they hope to give everyone a blanket, a hot drink, and a little comfort. For 90.9 WBUR, this is Irina Machavariani. There's no school again today in Woburn, but not because of the cold. The teacher strike there is entering its fifth day. The teachers' union and school officials couldn't reach a deal on a contract, but the teachers say a lot of progress was made. The union says it's hoping to work out a deal so classes can resume on Monday. Four Boston police officers are facing more charges in connection to an overtime fraud investigation. The U.S. Attorney's Office says those officers claimed overtime hours they never worked between 2016 and 2019. Prosecutors say they collectively embezzled more than $200,000. Four other officers have already pleaded guilty in the case. A Massachusetts House candidate who was declared the winner by just a single vote will be sworn in on Beacon Hill this morning. Democrat Kristen Kastner of Hamilton will take her seat about a month after most of her fellow lawmakers. Kastner will replace Republican incumbent Lenny Mira. He challenged the race's outcome in court. A judge ultimately ruled the final decision must come from the House, which certified Kastner's win this week. It's 7.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Porter Square Books with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and Nick Stone, authors of How to Be a Young Anti-Racist, Tuesday, February 7th. Tickets at portersquarebooks.com. In sports, the Celtics will try to make it three wins in a row tonight as they host the Phoenix Suns and your forecast. As you heard, a few scattered flurries falling across the region have mostly tapered off. It's going to be sunny today, but cold will fall from the 20s to the teens and then the single digits by about the time people are heading home. And tonight, wind chills could reach 30 below. It's the same for tomorrow, so bundle up and stay bundled up. It's 24 degrees in Boston at 708. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. 
Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to make a short trip to China this weekend. China and the U.S. have been trying to cool off tensions. They've been talking a little bit, but their strategic competition continues, and the latest source of tension is high over the United States. The Pentagon asserts that a Chinese surveillance balloon has been flying high over Montana. To talk about how this might affect Blinken's visit, we're joined by NPR China correspondent Emily Fang. Hi, Emily. Hey, Leila. Okay, Emily, why don't we just start by talking about what a surveillance balloon even is, what it looks like, and what do we know about the one that was supposedly spotted over Montana? So in this case, this was a large white balloon, so big, in fact, that it was spotted by people on the ground in Montana, and it's used to collect intel from the air. A senior defense official in the U.S. said they are absolutely certain it was China that set it afloat, though they did not explain how they they knew that, and that the U.S. has been tracking this balloon from the moment it entered U.S. airspace a few days ago. The spokesperson said there was a discussion about whether to shoot it down, uh, but they decided to let it be because it's flying at such high altitude that the Pentagon said it poses no physical or or military risk, though it was flying over U.S. missile sites. Mm. Now, countries spy on each other all the time from the air using satellites and drones. And while a balloon does seem a little unusual, Um, The defense official said it's actually happened a couple of times over the past few years. This is what a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson had to say about the balloon. So the spokesperson in China said China is figuring out the relevant situation and we hope to deal with this calmly with the U.S. But diplomatically, this is really awkward. It puts the two countries again, at odds with one another, even before the Secretary of State has gone to China. And it's also given China hawks in the U.S. more material to seize on. Mm. Uh, The U.S. and China have been trying to stabilize their relationship, but this incident and ongoing bipartisan efforts to increase sanctions on China could get in the way of that. So this is very public. Um, Despite the spotting of the spy balloon, do you think that this visit could lead to any type of breakthrough with the Rocky relationship? So first of all, what's interesting is Lincoln's trip to China has not been officially confirmed by either side. Mm. Neither country has commented publicly on the trip, though we do expect that the Secretary of State should be leaving for China on Sunday. The trip looks like it's still on despite this kerfuffle over the balloon, but expectations are really low, and they're probably even lower now given this balloon drama. U.S. officials and former diplomats I've been speaking to say the trip might result in some kind of joint statement, perhaps on combating climate change or perhaps even something against the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, but there are no expected deliverables, and there shouldn't really be any breakthroughs on the main issues at the heart of the U.S.-China relationship. Okay, then what's the point of the visit at all? That's a really good question. Well, officials emphasize talking is better than just not talking at all. And there are some meaty issues at the heart of the relationship over human rights, combating climate change, technological competition. So that involves getting China on board, even if the two countries don't see eye to eye. And the fact that Blinken is even going to China is already progress. NPR's Emily Fang, thanks so much. Thanks, Leila. Dave Finkelstein is following all this. He is a former U.S. Army China specialist, now a vice president at the Center for Naval Analyses. Welcome to the program, sir. Well, good morning, Steve. Were you surprised by the Pentagon statement that a Chinese balloon seemed to be floating over Montana? Well, I I was not surprised by the fact that the the Chinese are doing this and may have done it again in, uh, in, in the past, as the statement said. 
because that's what, what countries do. They surveil each other. Uh, but I am a little bit curious, like others are, about the timing of uh, the announcement. As Emily said, it will certainly make uh, an interesting talking point for Secretary Blinken, assuming that his trip goes forward. Oh, uh, when you say you're interested in the timing, there are two factors here. One is why do the Chinese send the balloon now? And the other is why did the Pentagon make a big deal of it now, I guess? Well, I don't think anybody can answer that with high fidelity. We can only speculate. Uh, I mean, odds are that uh, this... Uh, this balloon was probably of such a size that commercial aviation at some point uh, might actually uh, note it and wonder mm. what's going on. So uh, there may have been some attempt to, to get ahead of that. You know, we can only speculate. You know, is this moment symbolic uh, because the two sides are saying, yes, we're going to talk. Tony Blinken is on his way to Beijing, but they're also continuing their strategic competition. Well, well this, again, this is the nature of the relationship at the moment. There are significant strategic differences between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Uh, no, neither side is making a secret of that. Our, both of our strategic documents, both in Beijing and from Washington, underscore it time and again. But what's going on here is that uh, as a result of the meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping in Bali in November 2020, uh, there was uh, an agreement to at least uh, look into starting a process of uh, dialogue at, at a very high level to at least think about what kind of processes are necessary to, as the U.S. says, put guardrails uh, against uh, around this relationship to make sure it doesn't plummet even further than it has. Oh, yeah. So they met late last year. Diplomats have been talking. Now they'll have higher level talks. So what things would they see it in their interest to agree on? Pretty narrow, I would think. Well, I think the, the important thing is to is to try to find a process, uh, a way to regularize high level discussions so that uh, process can take over in managing this relationship, which is the, the discussions have not been uh, high in frequency and, and high in, in uh, productivity. So we've, we've got to find a way to start those discussions. Did, when you say process, you mean they're just like basic issues like visas, visas for journalists, visas for other people, students in the United States from China, that sort of thing. And they're just little issues that need to be dealt with on a technocratic level. Is that what you say when you say process? Uh, no, although those are important and necessary things to be working with with Chinese counterparts. It is how are we going to communicate at the highest levels of uh, leadership to make sure that strategic misperception does not uh, rule the day? What types of mechanisms do we want in place that need to be either revitalized because they lapsed or created in the absence of of uh, mechanisms for the leaders to be talking to each other at a significant level. Uh, many years ago, there were uh, several uh, mechanisms that were that were used. And we've seen, uh, for example, uh, S Secretary uh, Yellen uh, speaking with Liu He, her counterpart at Davos recently, uh, the idea that high-level members of both administrations have means of communication. And uh, this is this is like the this is like the old Cold War idea with the Soviets. You want to make sure they're talking so there's not a misunderstanding and a, and a calamity. 
Yes, strategic miscalculation is probably one of the biggest problems bedeviling the relationship at the moment. You talked about miscalculation and misunderstanding strategically. Let me ask about one news development. The other day, this week, the United States announced that it has obtained the right to build, if it wants, or to access four more military bases in the Philippines, not very far from China. The U.S. already had access to some bases there. The Philippines is an ally. Um, if people watch that in Beijing... Do they see the United States strengthening its interests, or do they see the United States preparing to threaten China in some way? Well, I think Beijing's attention is focused laser-like on all of the progress the United States has made in uh, getting countries in the region, allies, partners, and others, to understand what's at stake in the region and uh, the U.S. enhancing its own security posture. So, so this cannot be a very happy development for Beijing. And if you go back to the political report that Xi Jinping gave to the 20th Party Congress back in October, uh, they presented a very dire uh, picture of China's uh, security situation. Because the United States has lined up so many allies around China. Well, that's their perspective. You're, but, but you're saying that is actually correct. The United States has lined up a lot of allies. Yes, the, the United States is working very hard to work with its allies and partners to, to enhance their own defenses and to create a security uh, architecture in the region that can preserve the peace and the stability that it has enjoyed for over four or five decades. Dave Finkelstein, vice president of the, or a vice president of the Center for Naval Analyses. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. I love a gel manicure. It doesn't smudge when you search for your keys, do the dishes. But now there are questions about how safe the UV lamp used to dry the polish actually is. Researchers from UC San Diego and the University of Pittsburgh looked into gel manicures, and here's how they did it. They put cell samples from mice and humans under one of those UV dryers. The changes that were seen in the cells are similar to what would be seen in skin cancer in a person. After frequent exposure to the light, many cells in the samples died or had damaged DNA. Now, the FDA says UV nail-curing lamps are, quote, low risk when used as directed. But Sherry Lipner, a dermatologist at Weill Cornell Medicine, says the new study seems to confirm what some doctors worried about for years. In light of the study, I think it should convince people even more to use caution. That means following doctors' recommendations for using sunscreen and wearing fingerless gloves when you're under a UV dryer or thinking about cutting back or stopping gel manicures altogether. Mm. Sorry, Layla. No. Okay. Maria Zivagie, who led the study, says when she saw the data on DNA damage, she decided to kick her own gel manicure habit. It was very alarming and surprising for me because I did not expect that much effect. And Javagye says she will not get much more use from the UV dryer she has at home. Probably one day I will use it to dry the glue on the floor or something. Until then, it stays in the drawer. Dermatologist Sherry Lipner recommends routine checkups for skin cancer as a good habit for those that are sticking with the gel manicure. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new study shows that of all the things parents in the U.S. are concerned about, they worry most about their children's mental health. It's 720. Growing up as an immigrant, I often felt like there were these two competing ideas of romantic love or what it should be. There's the classic falling in love at first sight that we celebrate in American pop culture. And then there's this, quote, more practical version that says, love will grow with time as long as your values align. The two ideas felt at odds to a younger me, but the slightly wiser me, the journalist me, knows there's more than one way to understand big, complex ideas. I'm Yasmin Amr, and I'm a reporter at WBUR. We want to keep bringing you new perspectives and tell stories to deepen our understanding of one another. You will help us do that when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Visit WBUR.org to get started. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. It'll be sunny today with temperatures falling from the 20s, where they are now, to the single digits by late afternoon. Much colder with the wind chill. It's 23 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Parents are always worrying about their kids. Are they hungry? Are they cold? Are they happy? And it doesn't matter if those kids are 30 or 13 years old. Right now, though, for American parents, the biggest concern about their kids younger than 18 is not drugs, it's not alcohol or teen pregnancy, it's mental health. A recent Pew survey finds that around 40% of parents are extremely or very worried their children might struggle with anxiety. I asked Dr. Pamela Cantor, founder and senior science advisor of Turnaround for Children, what these numbers say about the struggles of the youngest Americans today. If anything, the numbers could turn out to be an underestimate of the suffering. Health and illness exist on a continuum. And if you stress a system in the body in an unremitting kind of way, that system will get frayed. And when it gets frayed, symptoms appear. And put everything I just said in the context of the last two and a half years of the pandemic. Stress, anxiety, depression is not like some kind of infection that you get and then you take medicine and it goes away. We know that there are things that we can do, whether they have to do with nutrition, sleep, meditation. We know that sports and athletics and physical activity can be helpful. And most of all, relationships 
supportive relationships have a biology that's actually protective of the brain. What does that do to a child's mind? Many people don't know that the human relationship is actually biologically mediated by an incredibly powerful hormone called oxytocin. It is the hormone that produces feelings of love, trust, attachment, and safety. And it only gets activated one way, human connection. In addition to that, it actually supports learning. It makes kids want to discover and explore. It gives them the confidence to try things. What kind of role does social media play when it comes to all the things you mentioned? Social media actually will activate certain parts of the brain that are called the reward pathways. These are pathways that drive appetite. So imagine the more you click, the more you check your Instagram account and your Twitter account. That process is actually strengthening the reward pathways and strengthening the appetite for more. So we have a situation going on where the actual behavior around social media is increasing the appetite for social media, even though the effect of social media on things like self-esteem, sleep, and well-being are profound and not positive. So when I was raising my daughter in the 90s, yep. when she was a preteen transitioning into being a teen, she went through all of the things that you just mentioned, but there was no social media back then. So how do you know if it's a stressor caused by these external pressures or it's just kids growing up and you know stuff happens to kids' hormones when they grow up? We have had a once-in-a-century event. A giant amount of stress was applied to a very vulnerable population. Kids between the ages of 12 and 25 have been hardest hit by this. And what they have been hardest hit by is stress in the areas of their greatest vulnerabilities. Identity formation, their mood, their belief in themselves, their confidence in the future. That's where the stresses have been most profound. Kids, adults, older folks, I mean, every, it pushed everyone toward this isolation with our devices. What I would wish for kids is that they thought about who in the world are the trusted figures to them? Who are the people that could most remind them of their self-worth, of their assets and strengths? So doctor, what are some signs then that parents should look out for? The things that one should always be on the alert for is a marked change in what are called constitutional symptoms. That means things like appetite, sleep, mood, anger and aggressiveness, impulsivity. Those are indicators that something is not right, emotionally speaking. And, you know, if a young person has a bad day, we shouldn't be ringing the alarm bells. But when you see a change like that, and it's a persistent change, it goes on for a week or two, then the effects of the stress are probably beginning to take their toll. Doctor, how do you help parents then who feel helpless when their children are struggling? Because you want to do something, but you feel paralyzed. Where parents are able to be one of the people their kids trust the most then parents or teachers or a wonderful coach can be the antidote to this. 
And that means that they probably have to not judge, not blame, not criticize, but be curious and interested about their kids' lives and create that space, the safe space where a young person wants to tell you what's actually going on. And when they don't want to tell you that, they're going to find somebody else. And if they really have no one in their life, they're going to find social media. Dr. The Pew survey also pointed to parental burnout. Yep. My kids are in their 30s. I worry about them every single day and they have kids. So I worry about my grandkids too. Of course is you there do. Anything, is there anything that can help me not worry so much? It's some feeling that you're not alone, some feeling that somebody really understands what's going on and empathizes with it. And you bond with others that can make you feel the sunshine, make you feel the light in your life. Those things make you feel strong, and those are the kinds of things that build resilience. That's child psychiatrist and author, Dr. Pamela Cantor. Doctor, thank you. Thank you so much, A. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, an employment report out later today from the Labor Department is expected to show that the job market is still tight, with unemployment near a half-century low. And we say goodbye to Morning Edition host Rachel Martin. It's 729. Follow the news all day with WBUR. You can stay with us no matter where you go. We're at 90.9 on the radio, WBUR.org online, on the WBUR mobile app, on your phone, or you can ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Beijing is saying little about what the Pentagon believes is a Chinese surveillance balloon spotted at high altitudes over the continental U.S. At one point, it was seen over Montana, which is home to one of the nation's three nuclear missile silo fields. NPR's Emily Fang has more. A senior defense official in the U.S. said they are absolutely certain it was China that set it afloat, though they did not explain how they knew that, and that the U.S. has been tracking this balloon from the moment it entered U.S. airspace a few days ago. A Pentagon spokesman says this is not the first such incident. A spokeswoman for China's foreign ministry would neither confirm nor deny the balloon, saying Beijing is looking into the matter. Democrats in the House say yesterday's party-line vote to remove Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota from the Foreign Affairs Committee was politically motivated. Omar went beyond that, saying on the House floor she was targeted. There is this idea that you are a suspect if you are an immigrant or if you are from certain parts of the world or a certain skin tone or a Muslim. Omar is a Somali-born Muslim. Republicans say they voted to remove her from the panel because of Omar's past comments about Israel, which were widely criticized as anti-Semitic and for which she later apologized. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
The extreme cold weather is on its way. By the evening commute, temperatures will be in the single digits and wind chills will be well below zero. The cold snap is expected to last until Sunday. While it's still relatively warm this morning, it might be a good time to give a quick check to your car. Mary McGuire is with AAA Northeast. So if you've been working from home, if you haven't driven your car in some time, uh, or if your battery is older, again, five, six, seven years old, you may be at risk of having a dead battery and not being able to start your car. A number of school districts have canceled school today ahead of the cold. Those include Boston, Worcester, and Brockton. The T warns that the cold could cause delays this evening and tomorrow. As you prepare to turn up the heat this weekend, there's some good news for your energy bills. Massachusetts is telling utilities to reduce the price of the natural gas they provide. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports you could see the savings in your bill by next month. The savings will be modest, between $10 to $30 per month for the average household. But it's welcome news during a winter season when energy prices have spiked dramatically. Rebecca Tepper leads the state's Department of Energy and Environmental Affairs. She says natural gas is a volatile commodity, so while prices are falling at the moment, that could easily change. If we were building our own wind, solar, storage, we wouldn't face this worldwide volatility pricing and customers would have much more stable pricing. Tepper says reducing our reliance on natural gas would also be good for the state's climate goals and public health. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. So-called MBTA communities, meaning cities and towns near transit stations, have submitted plans to the state to build more housing. In 2021, Governor Baker directed 175 communities to build more multifamily units within a half mile of transit stops. All but seven met the deadline this week. Communities that don't comply risk losing some state funding. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Celtics will be at the Garden tonight to host the Phoenix Suns, and we may be talking about wrecking cold today, but there is a sign of spring. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports that it's truck day at Fenway Park. They're talking baseball. Baseball and the Sox. Today is the day the Red Sox equipment truck starts making its way to spring training in Fort Myers, Florida. Pitchers and catchers have their first scheduled workout on February 15th, and Boston's first Grapefruit League game is set for February 25th against the Atlanta Braves. The Red Sox finished dead last in the American League East last year and lost several key players in the offseason, including all-star shortstop Xander Bogarts. But as they say, hope springs eternal. The Sox open the regular season March 30th at home against the Baltimore Orioles. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Temperatures will fall throughout the day today from the 20s to about 7 degrees by 5 p.m. High winds will make it feel like negative 14. Tonight, a low of negative 6, and it'll feel like negative 30. Tomorrow, sunny with a high in the mid-teens, but it'll still feel like negative 30. Mostly cloudy and mid-40s on Sunday. It's 23 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. 
From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Morning edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The job market has been rock steady in recent months. Employers kept hiring workers even as other parts of the economy slowed. We'll find out later this morning if that trend continued into January. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now with a preview of the Labor Department's monthly jobs report. Hi, Scott. Good morning. Good morning. So employers added 223,000 jobs in December. What do forecasters think happened last month? They think hiring slowed a little bit in January, but there's more than the usual uncertainty around this month's report. Mm. For one thing, there was a lot of bad weather around the country during the week the survey was taken, and that may have thrown a wet blanket over the job market. January is also the time of year when a lot of retail businesses ordinarily let people go after the holiday season, uh, and the Labor Department tries to correct for that, but a lot of seasonal adjustments have been thrown out of whack during the pandemic because hiring patterns have shifted some. Uh, We do know that consumer spending has slowed down in recent months, and you might think that would mean less demand for workers. But those assumptions are being tested right now. For example, factory orders have been going down for months, uh, and yet a new survey of factory managers shows many are still adding workers. Tim Fiore, who conducts that survey for the Institute for Supply Management, thinks factories just want to be ready for a rebound in business they think is coming later in the year. I think what has happened is, is that companies have decided, let's not lay them off. It's going to be too hard to get them back, and they're going to miss the upside in the second half. So looking ahead to this morning's report, one forecaster said, this is a time when you have to expect the unexpected. So if employers are still hungry to find workers, does that mean they're paying more? Yes. Wages are going up, although not as fast as they were. Average wages in December were up just over 4.5% from a year ago. Of course, workers like those bigger paychecks, but for the Federal Reserve, it's a concern that if wages go up too fast, that could put upward pressure on prices and make it harder to get inflation under control. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said this week he is glad to see a modest slowdown in wage growth, but that there's still a ways to go. My own view would be that you're not going to have a sustainable return to 2% inflation without a better balance in the labor market. For now, Powell says the job market is still out of balance, meaning employers want more workers than they've been able to hire, even with these modestly rising wages. Hmm. There's been a lot of news about layoffs, especially at big tech companies. What kind of toll is that taking on the job market? Yeah, it certainly gets your attention with big when big companies like Google and Amazon announce that they're cutting thousands of jobs. Obviously, that's a hardship for those workers involved. But overall, layoffs are still pretty uncommon in this job market. Every week we get a tally of how many new people have applied for unemployment benefits, and that's kind of a barometer of pink slips. Uh, Despite the gloomy headlines out of Silicon Valley lately, overall layoff numbers have remained at really low levels. Okay. How does today's job market compare with what we've seen in the last couple of years? Monthly hiring has definitely downshifted, uh, as you might expect, when employment is as low as it is. Uh, By the way, we got an annual revision to the jobs tally this morning. It's expected to show hiring was even stronger in the 12 months leading up to last March than originally reported. Over the last two years, employers have added well over 10 million jobs uh, as the country refilled the hole left by the pandemic and then some. And I suspect we'll hear more about that uh, jobs track record when President Biden gives his State of the Union speech next week. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks so much. You're welcome. 
You know, the first time that I recall our co-host Rachel Martin, she was reporting from Baghdad, Iraq. She went there in one of the worst years of that war. But one thing I noted was her cheerful presence on the far end of the line and her passion for what she was doing. Later, Rachel returned to the United States and after an extensive reporting career, became co-host of this program. And today we have some news about our brilliant co-host. Do I have to say this? Yes. I don't want to say this. Well, say it. Rachel is moving on to another role at NPR, creating something new. But here at Morning Edition, we are going to miss her so much. During six years on this program, Rachel covered stories both serious and silly, which is what the job demands. She led our coverage of the opioid epidemic. When a parent is fighting addiction, sometimes the only place their kids feel safe is school. And teachers and staff are the first to see signs that something's not right. They'll just walk into the office and start crying and they hug you and you sit down and talk with them and find out what's going on in their their secret little world. On another day, Rachel climbed onto a presidential campaign bus and challenged then-candidate Joe Biden. You know it didn't look good for Hunter Biden to be on that board, even if he did nothing wrong. The optics weren't good. The fact of the matter is my son testified and did an interview saying if he, looking back on it, made a mistake. He made a mistake. And with equal force, Rachel challenged people who rejected the results of the 2020 election. On January 10th, this is how they characterized President Biden's win. The greatest coup in modern history. So when you understand what's at stake, you understand that you must act and put the fear of God in those who are committing the coup. Again, that's not true. It's not based in any fact or evidence. Rachel's work has sought out many kinds of truth, like when she questioned U2's Bono about his faith. That's a gospel song. It's a psalm, if you want to. What's a psalm? Sorry, did I not pronounce that right? Psalm? It's a psalm. Is that how you say it, Rachel? You're so posh. I'm from Idaho. I don't know (laughs) if that's my particular dialect. The psalm. Haven't found. Rachel Martin is up early with us one more time. Rachel. Where are you going? I love it. Steve's still singing on the air. I'm Um, so I'm still here. I'm just not gonna get up at 3 a.m. to host the show anymore, guys. I'm gonna stick around. I'm gonna still be the host of Up First Sunday, and I'm gonna pop into this program from time to time. You're not getting rid of me, but I am gonna go work on a new project about faith and how we make meaning in our lives. And there will be all kinds of interesting things to share with you when the time comes. But I couldn't leave without saying goodbye and taking a minute to say thank you to a lot of people. Anything that I ever did on this show that made any of our listeners think or feel something, all of that happened because of the incredible journalists who we work with on this show and all of those who came before them because there are many. Morning Edition is bigger than any of us, right? It's bigger than any one person. And we are all here for a time as stewards of its legacy and its mission which is to bring you the news you need to be an informed, responsible citizen in what is a very precious democracy. So thank you to everyone who shared their stories with me on this show, to all those who gave me a chance to live my dream by hosting it. And thank you to my co-hosts, David Green, Noel King, A. Martinez, Layla, and Steve. Each of you has taught me more than you know. It has been my honor to share the mic with you, even if I had to suffer through years of Steve's bad jokes. Ah. <laughs> and thanks to our listeners for letting me into your lives. Radio is an intimate business, and I have felt just as connected to you as you have to this program. It has been my true honor to spend this time with you. 
Wow. Well, come back and share what you learn in your new project with us here. I on promise. Okay. I promise I will. NPR's Rachel Martin on Morning Edition from NPR News. We're not going anywhere here at WBOR in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, on his last day in the position, outgoing Boston Senior Advisor for Public Safety, Rufus Falk, reflects on how gun violence changed during his tenure. And in our next hour, the Polish ambassador to the U.S. explains Poland's strategy for supporting Ukraine with no end in sight to the Russian invasion. In your forecast, we'll have clear skies today while temperatures fall from the 20s to the single digits by the evening commute. With the wind, it'll feel like negative 14. Tonight, it just gets worse. The wind will make it feel like negative 30. Tomorrow, still sunny and cold with temperatures in the mid-teens, but it'll still feel like negative 30. A relative heat wave on Sunday. It'll be mostly cloudy and in the mid-40s. It's 22 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, ICABoston.org. Now in business news, the restaurant group Cambridge Eats and Beats is selling two of its beloved businesses in Porter Square. As WBUR's Castella Guerra reports, one of those businesses hasn't operated since the start of the pandemic. The 42-year-old Christopher's Restaurant and Bar closed in 2020 and will not reopen. And the adjoining bar and live music venue Toad is also up for sale. Co-owner Holly Heslop says they made their final decision to sell two weeks ago. We were so fixated on opening. You know, it was our goal from the beginning. No one could have imagined then that we wouldn't be back in business now. Heslop and her husband also run Cambridge Common and Lizard Lounge. Both will remain open. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. Former Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito will serve as the new independent director of Boston-based Berkshire Bank. She officially started the job yesterday. That's not the only role Polito has taken on since leaving office at the start of this year. We learned last week she's also joining the board of Watertown-based Firefly Help. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. There's a changing of the guard at Boston City Hall as Senior Advisor for Public Safety Rufus Falk steps down and is replaced by his friend Isaac Yablo. Falk was appointed to the position in 2018 by Marty Walsh and for an exit interview of sorts, he joins me now. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Falk. Well, thank you for having me. How did the issues of public safety change in Boston while you were in this position? So we saw a weird dynamic. Traditionally, a lot of the violence that was sort of gang-centric was led by some of the older traditional gangs. What we've sort of seen now is that a lot of this violence has been more centered around social media interactions and oftentimes interpersonal conflicts versus this really big group dynamics. 
How has the city adjusted to those changes? It's forced us to be more innovative. The approach is now sort of definitely built on trying to make sure that we are not only working with the individuals impacted, but have a holistic approach that we're also working with entire families and communities, recognizing that trauma is real. It has only been exacerbated with the pandemic. It must be really frustrating and emotional, right? Because we've had incidents of kids bringing guns to school. There was a bag of bullets found in one school, fights in schools, a a string of high-profile shootings. Some of them were in broad daylight and near schools. You have a young daughter yourself, and you come from a similar place. How are you feeling? Uh, Yeah, so it's uh, incredibly heart-wrenching. Just for me, I, I started doing this work summer 2004. I was 22 years old and I'm 41. And to be honest with you, it, no matter how much progress that you make, every incident where there's a loss of life or there's a shooting can bring you right back to the first incident that you remember either as a service provider as, or as a kid growing up. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tremendously draining work, but it's also can be fulfilling. But I think for me, I, I just recognize that I think it's it's time for me to try to find impact another way. Overall, violence in the city is declining, but it also disproportionately affects communities of color. And, you know, people can have the feeling that violence goes unaddressed because it's happening in communities of color. What do you say when people say that? I think both things can be true. The reality is, is that the numbers are going down. But if you live on Humboldt Avenue, like like I lived for so many years, it doesn't feel like that. It, it feels like you're on a sort of constant cycle of violence. So we have to do something as a city of Boston to make sure that the experiences of young people in the city is not determined by the sort of zip code you live under. I was talking to these kids in uh, Mattapan the other day, and they feel like they just see guns everywhere and they just wish someone would take away all the guns. Has that changed the flow of guns into the city, where it's coming from, how many guns are in the city? We're seeing guns with high-capacity magazines. These were things that we weren't seeing in the 90s or in the early 2000s. There are things like ghost guns where folks are putting the components of guns together and then creating their own guns. Some of the guns that they are confiscating are guns that have the potential to inflict whole lot of damage. Isaac Yablo is a friend of yours and a mentee. What are your hopes for his tenure? I think we'll see the greatest change if we are really focused on those communities most directly impacted. And we know who those communities are. They've been the same communities have been have been impacted for the last 30 years. As long as they continue to do that, they will continue to be effective in this work. Outgoing Senior Advisor for Public Safety, Rufus Bach, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rupai. I appreciate you taking the time. Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabriela. (laughs) On New Year's Eve, Gabby showed up unexpectedly to my performance in Boston's South End. I'm also a musician, and it was one of my proudest moments as a dad to play music with my daughter. Gabby agreed to get up on stage with me and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share my story of love and music with our WBUR family. 
Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose to send flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The film Let It Be Morning centers on the story of Sammy, a Palestinian-Israeli who thinks he's made it, working at a tech company in Jerusalem, living a double life with his Jewish-Israeli mistress. But when he heads to his family's village for a wedding, he wakes up to find it encircled by Israeli soldiers and isolated from the world. The arbitrary blockade forces Sammy to reflect on his marriage, his family, and his place in a nation that treats Palestinian citizens as lesser than Jewish citizens. Palestinian-Israeli actor Alex Bakri plays Sammy. Sammy suddenly realizes that He's in the eyes of the authorities, in the eyes of the society, in the eyes of the people he thinks they value him. He's just another Palestinian. The Jewish-Israeli filmmaker Iran Kolarin adapted Palestinian author Sayyid Keshwa's novel Let It Be Morning for the screen. It's coming out in the U.S. at a time when violence and tension has been rising for months in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Kolarin told me when Keshwa approached him about making the film, he was drawn to the project because... Sometimes film shouldn't be done unless it's impossible. And there was something so intriguing in the story. And I loved the book so much. And I could understand why on a deeper level than my ethnic identity, let's say. Why? Because of my previous work. Why did Syed Kashua thought that, you know, I would be the one for this script? Because I think we connect in a lot of ways in the perception of the absurd and the, the perception of... Uh, human life and this combination of being funny and being terrible at the same time. And those are the things that move me. So Alex, you play Sammy, this man on a journey. If you could give us his backstory and what it was like to play him. So he's working in a IT company in Jerusalem. He's somebody who left home and never looked back. And that's where he found his place in life, basically, away from his home, away from his village. I thought there's a lot of similarity between me and him. I grew up exactly in a village like this. I found a lot of differences between me and the character. I'm not so disconnected <laughs> from the place. But there was a lot of uh, similarities in a, in a way of searching your identity, in a way that whether a man can create his own identity while erasing his past, and eventually it's uh, impossible. Yeah. I think such a remarkable thing about this film is the way it depicts the tensions and stratifications within Palestinian communities, those who enforce the policy of the Israeli state and what that looks like when you're enforcing policy on Palestinian communities, Palestinians doing that to Palestinians. If you could, Iran, if I start with you, if you could talk to me about portraying that and the importance of portraying that. I mean, that's one of the most brilliant things in Syed's book. And it's kind of depicting history as a kind of vortex of every class when it's being encircled or besieged. The first thing that this class does is encircles and besieging another lower class as much as they can. So it's like all part of this disease, the power struggle. 
like Iran said, the film really depicts this class system within the whole region, you know, like you have the Jewish society, which is like the upper class kind of, you have the Palestinian Israelis that are enjoying some kind of rights more than Palestinians in the West Bank in Gaza who are living under military regime. So that already creates a kind of a class system. Besides that, there's also the people who are working for the criminals who are enforcing these policies, which is both a metaphor and both real. There is a moment in the film, Iran, where Sammy's father, the village is running out of things because it's under a blockade, running out of food. At one point, they can't get water. And Sammy's father starts to say in the middle of the village, we are dying here. And then someone else says, we are dying here. And then he breaks into song. It's almost this rallying cry of sorts, if you could talk about that scene. Yes, I think that's the darkest moment of the soul in some ways. Because on some moments there's nothing more to say than just shout your words into the darkness, you know? The song Chandelier, it comes up multiple times in the movie. <laughs> okay, we get, to, we get to a brighter... Yeah, what's, what's the significance of that song? What is that? I mean, yeah, exactly, night and day here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I'm just, I mean, all those morbid issues are dealt in the film there's no doubt about it but you know i would love the audience also to know that it's a film about love and it's a funny film and it's a human film you know the film of course there's politics there but no work of art can be i think just about politics if it doesn't reach out to the inner places of the human soul then it just doesn't work <laughs> In some ways, I think only a pop song can really drag you out of hell. Alex, um, you chose not to go to the Cannes Film Festival with the rest of the mm -hmm. cast because it was categorized as an Israeli film. If you could talk to me about making that decision. Well, you know, like the state of Israel is known for using art and cinema, gay parade or anything that promotes liberal values to try to conceal their crimes against Palestinians and, you know, to pretend it's a thriving democracy. And somehow we knew that this specific film would be a perfect film for that. And uh, we kind of preemptive <laughs> strike and it was also during times where it was really difficult times. There was uh, the attack on Gaza and there were settlers attacking Palestinians. We had to think about it. What do we do? It, you know, like to go now to Cannes and celebrate. And like a lot of times the Israeli minister of culture comes there and pretends everything is fine. And, you know, as if the state of Israel is promoting coexistence. Whereas it's completely the opposite what's happening. I mean, cooperation between us is happening in spite of the state, not because of it. So we had a long discussion about what to do and also with Iran, uh, whether we should go there, we should protest there. What's the most effective way to make this protest? This was actually a great platform to just show a protest. Actor Alex Bakri and director Iran Kolarin speaking to us about their film, Let It Be Morning. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire future generations with an education degree from Lesley University. Learn more at lesley.edu. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Pentagon says it has detected a Chinese spy balloon over Montana just days before a visit to Beijing by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. It's Friday, February 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're going to see dangerously cold temperatures today and tomorrow. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has what you need to know about the record-breaking deep freeze descending on the region. Also this hour, the Polish ambassador to the U.S. discusses Poland's drastic increase in defense spending to support Ukraine as the Russian invasion enters a second year. It will take time and it will take a a very serious um, long-term effort also on our side. And a new report warns the Great Salt Lake could dry up within five years with disastrous consequences for Utah's economy and environment. Sunny today, temperatures fall from the 20s to the single digits by late afternoon. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A large surveillance balloon has been flying over the continental U.S. for a few days. It was spotted most recently in Montana. Defense officials believe the balloon came from China, but the Pentagon says it does not pose any danger to planes or to U.S. security interests. The spokesperson for China's foreign ministry, Mao Ning, is urging calm. Mao is heard here through a translator. We are gathering and verifying the facts. I would like to stress that before it becomes clear what happened, any deliberate speculation we're hyping up will not help handling the matter. There is an awkward complication. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is supposed to arrive in Beijing this weekend. He'll be speaking with senior Chinese leaders. Extreme cold is moving into the northeastern U.S. The National Weather Service says temperatures will drop below zero tonight across New England. The greatest danger is that wind chills will plunge, making it feel as much as 50 degrees below zero. From member station WRVO, Ava Pukach has more from Syracuse, New York. New Yorkers are urged to start preparing early and limit their time outdoors this weekend. State officials are warning that below zero temperatures and wind chills can create risks of frostbite and hypothermia in short periods of time. Governor Kathy Hochul's office cautions anyone who has to spend time outside to keep their skin dry and to dress in layers, covering all body parts like fingers, toes, nose, and ears. People using space heaters are advised to keep them at least three feet away from furniture, and to turn them off when leaving the room or going to bed to prevent fires. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse. The Labor Department reports this morning on job gains for the month of January. NPR's Scott Horsley reports forecasters expect to see a modest downshift from the pace of hiring compared to the month before. 
U.S. employers added 223,000 jobs in December. Last month's gains are expected to be somewhat lower, but there's even more uncertainty than usual in that forecast. A report from payroll processing company ADP this week suggests a sharper slowdown in January hiring, but ADP's chief economist says that number may have been thrown off by severe winter weather in much of the country during the week the survey was conducted. The job market remains unusually tight, with unemployment at or near a half-century low. Wage gains have cooled a bit, but the Federal Reserve worries that wages are still climbing at a pace that will make it harder to bring inflation under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is continuing his visits up and down the East Coast to talk about infrastructure. Today, he'll be in Philadelphia, where he will announce a half-a-billion-dollar investment to upgrade the city's water facilities. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Temperatures have started falling this morning, and they're going to keep dropping all day. It was 33 degrees here in Boston when we went on the air at 5 o'clock. Right now, it's 21 degrees. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says... We'll be in the teens much of the afternoon and then in the single digits by the time we get to this evening, which is obviously cold, but the big factor is going to be the wind today that makes it feel that much colder. Wind chills tonight will drop to 30 below zero. They won't let up until tomorrow afternoon. The T plans to have extra maintenance crews on hand today to deal with the cold. WBOR's Walter Rothman reports this weather will be a challenge to the system. The T's trains and buses use compressed air to operate their doors and brakes. The moisture in those systems can freeze and cause service issues. Freezing ground can also cause tracks to buckle or separate. MBTA Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville says they have extra crews to deal with both issues. Again, these significant temperature swings are a challenge for us, but they're a challenge that we prepare for and and we're ready for. T officials also plan to store trains in subway tunnels tonight to keep them warm. Officials urge people to bundle up if they're waiting at an outside stop and keep an eye out for anyone who might be struggling with the cold. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Schools across Massachusetts reported a lot more student absences last year. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, chronic absenteeism rose 10 percentage points between 2021 and 2022. According to a new report from the Rennie Center for Education Research and Policy, the number of Massachusetts students who missed more than 10 percent of school days jumped from 17 percent to 27 percent. Alexis Lian is the organization's director of policy. She says the number is particularly concerning because by 2022, school buildings had reopened for in-person learning. Those are days that students are missing out on instruction. Those are days that disrupt classroom culture and access to mental health and social-emotional needs to healthy, stable meals for students. The report also showed that educator retention and community college enrollment took hits from the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Massachusetts gaming officials say the launch of sports betting in the state was a slam dunk. The Gaming Commission says there were no technical problems with the in-person launch on Tuesday. The commission will now focus on the launch of online sports betting. That's tentatively scheduled to start next month. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. Tonight, the Celtics host the Phoenix Suns. Boston's Jalen Brown was named to the Eastern Conference Reserve Squad for the All-Star Game. Jason Tatum is a starter, and Joe Mazzula will be the coach. The game will be held February 19th in Salt Lake City. And your forecast, it's going to be sunny today, but cold. Temperatures are going to drop throughout the day from the 20s to the single digits by sunset. Wind chills will be below minus 10. It'll be cold and clear tonight, minus 6 in Boston, colder outside the city, and wind chills could reach 30 below. Sunny and cold tomorrow with temperatures in the teens. Wind chills will remain well below zero. It's 21 degrees in Boston at 807. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faltel. The College Board is being accused of giving in to political pressure now that it's revised an advanced placement African-American studies curriculum. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had threatened to ban the course, claiming it contributed to a, quote, political agenda. Certain black writers were taken out of the curriculum that explored critical race theory, the queer experience, and black feminism. Lessons on things like Black Lives Matter are now optional. Joining us is Teresa Reed, the of the University of Louisville's School of Music. She's a member of the committee that developed the new framework. Good morning, Teresa. Good morning. Did the College Board cave into political pressure here? Absolutely not. And I can answer that by addressing some misunderstandings about the framework and about the totality of the course. Let me say first that the framework is not the totality of the course. There are other elements of the course that are still under construction, one of which is a very powerful online platform called AP Classroom, which supports all AP courses, and that is still being built for AP African American Studies. And it is on the platform where a very robust selection of all of those supposedly controversial topics and authors will live. Does that include, though, the things I mentioned, writers that explore critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, reparations, all these things that are uh, said to be controversial? Yes, the resources that address those controversial topics will live on AP, uh, AP Classroom that's being constructed for AP African American Studies. It's an online platform, and so that's separate and different from the framework itself, Mm -hmm. but it will be available to, uh, it'll be widely available. And I should mention those resources will be available, uh, accessible free of charge. I guess my question here, though, is would the revisions have been made if it didn't become such a political issue among people like Governor DeSantis and others? Um, Would it have been made if it wasn't being threat, if people weren't threatening to ban the course? No, not at all. The framework that was leaked was exactly the same. If you can imagine it publishing a book, by the time you release a completed book, in the prior life of that book are probably multiple iterations or multiple earlier drafts. The earlier draft of the framework that is the point of comparison to the officially released framework uh, was exactly that. It was a draft. Um, And so what's happened is that there was an assumption that the leaked draft 
was somehow an official pronouncement of what the course would include or exclude. And then the uh, released version from the day before yesterday is to be compared to that. Um, you know, if someone were to say to me, here's the book you published today, but here's your draft from a year ago, why aren't they the same? How to answer that question, one would be stumped because the question itself is pretty ludicrous. But absolutely not. Uh, DeSantis was, was not a factor at all in the framework uh, outcome of the framework. Uh, but there again, if the college board wanted to appease DeSantis, it didn't do a very good job because all of those uh, supposedly controversial, to controversial topics and authors will appear as secondary sources on AP Classroom. Uh, the other thing that I'd like to point out is that there is a very important project that students can do or that students will be required to do is 20% of the AP exam, of the AP score, which enables them to exercise the skill of argumentation on any topic at all of their choosing. And that skill of argumentation, which is a part of the course, will uh, instruct students on how to develop a thesis, how to uh, compile credible evidence, and how to string together a line of reasoning to form a persuasive argument. Keep in mind that the students doing that project in Unit 4 will have had access to all of the kinds of supposedly controversial authors and topics that the College Board has been uh, accused of eliminating, which will in fact live on the AP Classroom platform. After the draft was leaked, I mean, it became such a big news topic, a political hot topic, and so many issues that are explored are ultimately boogeymen in today's political uh, landscape, critical race theory, this academic concept that's been around for 40 years. What was it like to watch that happen as you were developing the course? I think that these times are fraught. And it's really important to keep students in the focus. I think the important thing about AP African American Studies at the end of the day is that it will enable students, uh, thousands, potentially millions of students, to get aspects of the American story that have traditionally not been told. And they'll get that story with robust pedagogy, many resources, and the ability to think about themselves as situated uh, in the American fabric in a very important way. Teresa Reed is a College Board consultant. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Layla. Allies of Ukraine are preparing for a second year of war. The anniversary of Russia's invasion is later this month. This means a second year of war for neighboring Poland, which has sent arms and aid to Ukraine. Poland's ambassador to the U.S. is Marek Magarowski. We had several discussions among EU ambassadors here in Washington whether we should start talking about a clash of civilizations, not the one described by Samuel Huntington in his famous book, mm -hmm. but another clash of cultures between Russia and Europe, or between Russia and the West, or between Russia and the free world. Poland was ruled by Russia in generations past. Faced now with Russian aggression, it has taken a larger role in urging Europe to resist. Poland last month pressured neighboring Germany to send advanced battle tanks to Ukraine, and Germany eventually did. Poland has sent some of its own military hardware across the border. Ambassador Magarowski says Ukraine needs more support to win this war, even though Russia has fought badly. We tended to overestimate Russia's military might sure. before the war, but I'm afraid we are now uh, 
underestimating it. What do you mean? I'm not um, terribly optimistic about the cause of this war. I think it will be a protracted conflict, if not a frozen one. I believe Putin can still flood Ukraine with manpower or cannon fodder, if you will. The Russian society and, the, and especially the Russian ruling elites are much more resilient than us, than the West. It will take time and it will take a, a very serious um, long-term effort also on our side. What does a protracted conflict mean for Poland, given that your country has already become a home for, I believe, millions of refugees? Since the beginning of the war, more than 9 million Ukrainian refugees uh, have crossed the border with Poland. Of course, not all of them stayed in our country. Some of them re-emigrated to other countries in Europe. Uh, some of them returned to Ukraine, but roughly 1.5 million refugees did remain in our country. Uh, they enjoy many benefits. Just a month after the war, the Polish parliament passed a law which essentially facilitates the integration into the Polish society, and they do integrate seamlessly, impeccably, into the Polish labour market, for example. And I believe this is our, not only a political, but also a personal obligation for many Poles to help our Ukrainian brethren. Poland has not always been as welcoming to refugees. There was much political frustration over refugees from the Middle East, for example. What makes it easier to contemplate millions of Ukrainians in your midst for a very long time? As I said, they integrate into the Polish society um, uh, extraordinarily. They have a similar cultural background and a religious background as well, which is of, uh, I believe, of critical importance. They learn the language in a matter of months. And, uh, about 95% of those refugees are women and children because we both know what the Ukrainian men are doing right now. And those women, up on arrival in Warsaw or in Krakow or in Gdansk, they never say, I want welfare. They never say, I want an allowance. I want uh, the Polish authorities to take care of myself and of my family. They always say, I want a job. And to get a job, because fortunately the, Polish, the, the unemployment rate in Poland is now ridiculously low. The ambassador's remarks there reflect long-standing views of Poland's ruling party and also widespread European resistance to migrants in years past. More recently, Russia's allies took advantage of that sensitivity, sending Middle Eastern migrants to Poland's border. The reception for Ukrainians has been very different. It would be unfair to compare these two crises, if you will, and uh, the Polish authorities conduct in these two cases. If your side prevails, what does a post-war Europe look like? I, it is my firm belief that now the, the, the whole world, and especially our European partners, have understood how important the eastern flank is in terms of deterrence. Deterrence is key. And that's why, for example, we are trying, we have been trying for months to convince our American partners that we need a permanent presence on Polish soil. We need more American troops. And we do believe unlike some other politicians in Western Europe, that we still need America as a military hegemon in this part of the world, in Europe. And I can only echo the words of uh, the Finnish prime minister, who said just a few weeks ago that without America, we would be in a completely different situation now in Europe. As many people will know, in the Cold War, Germany was the front line against the Soviet Union, and the United States developed a whole network of bases in Germany, many of which are still operating and very important to the United States. I think I hear you saying that if the U.S. had more bases in Poland, 
closer to Russia, that would Absolutely. be fine with you. Absolutely. Yes, of course. We, we are a, a, a frontline state with or without American bases because it's about geography. Russia has always been our neighbor. It is our neighbor and it will remain so. It will not vanish. Ambassador, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Murak Magarowski is Poland's ambassador to the United States. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear about a Guantanamo prisoner who sued the Biden administration for unlawful imprisonment. He's been released and is now living in Belize. It's 819. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm Scott Tong. As the FTX cryptocurrency swindle case unfolds in the courts, we talk to a historian who has studied fraud over the centuries. I have to admit, I'm always interested in a good fraud. And what kept striking me over and over again in this story is how similar this is to past frauds that we've seen. Next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The extreme cold in the forecast is affecting operations at New England ski areas. Jay Peak in New Hampshire is closed today. Berkshire East and Charlemont, Mass. says it plans to close at 4 this afternoon. Bretton Woods in New Hampshire says it will only have three of its lifts up and running. It's telling those who do want to come out and brave the cold to dress as warmly as possible. It'll be sunny today with temperatures falling to the single digits by late afternoon. It'll also be windy and wind chill values will be as low as negative 14. Tonight, a low of negative 6 and a wind chill value of negative 31. Tomorrow, sunny and still cold, a high near 16. With the wind, it'll feel like negative 30 again. Things get better on Sunday. Mostly cloudy and a high near 45. It's 21 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. From the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at Lemelson.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. An inmate at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, has been released to Belize. The former prisoner is 42 years old. He's a native of Pakistan, and his name is Majid Khan. He sued the Biden administration for unlawful imprisonment last year. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer has been covering Khan's release. Sasha, good morning. 
Good morning. So tell us about Majid Khan. Who is he? He was an unusual Guantanamo prisoner in several ways. He's a Pakistani citizen, but he grew up in Maryland near Baltimore. And more than a decade ago, he pleaded guilty in Guantanamo's military court to being an al-Qaeda courier. And there was some drama during his sentencing because a military jury urged that he get leniency. This was after jurors heard how he had been tortured at a secret CIA prison after being captured. Now, Khan completed his sentence almost a year ago, and he was free to leave Guantanamo, but the United States kept holding him. Okay, so Khan pleads guilty after being tortured, completes his sentence. Why was he still being held? Well, there were no legal grounds. It's just that the U.S. could not find another country to take him. He could not be safely transferred to Pakistan because he had cooperated with U.S. authorities. And then last summer, U.S. officials said they'd been in touch with 11 countries, but apparently could not find any takers. And Layla, this is a big issue at Guantanamo. It's a mm. common problem because the majority of Gitmo prisoners have been approved for release but are still being held. Some of them have been in that limbo state for more than a decade, wow. and that's even though they've never been charged with a crime. But these transfer deals are delicate, they're complicated negotiations, so a lot of the men are cleared to go, but they remain behind bars. So Belize agrees to take Khan. Does he have any connection to Belize? No, he doesn't. And the U.S. has not explained why Belize agreed to take him. We're, we're talking, of course, about a small English-speaking country in Central America. It has a population of only about 400,000 people. But countries that accept former Guantanamo prisoners have to agree to treat them humanely and provide security assurances. And Belize has emphasized that Khan is there as a free man on humanitarian grounds, just as if he were a migrant or a refugee looking for a second chance. I spoke with one of Khan's lawyers, and she's elated he's been released, but she did have harsh words for the U.S. government's operation at Guantanamo. Her name is Katya Justin, and here's part of what she told me. In what system do you finish your sentence when you are sentenced by a court of law and remain in jail? Where does that happen? Certainly not in a democracy that is governed by a system of laws. What is the U.S. government saying about Khan's release? Let me read to you from the Defense Department's announcement about his transfer. It says in part, quote, the United States appreciates the willingness of the government of Belize and other partners to support ongoing U.S. efforts focused on responsibly reducing the detainee population and ultimately closing the Guantanamo Bay facility. That's the end of the quote. So how many prisoners are still at Guantanamo and how many are now in, still in Khan's position where they were cleared for release? So 34 men remain. 20 of them fall in the category we talked about of never having been charged with anything and being approved mm. for release, yet sitting in prison while the U.S. tries to find countries to take them. Now, their cases are arguably more egregious than Khan's because at least he was charged with a crime and went through a court process. These others are considered forever prisoners, meaning held indefinitely without charge or trial. Forever prisoners. NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer, thank you. You're welcome. It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps, and this one reflects on the coming weekend because Sunday NASCAR holds the first on-track competition of its 75th anniversary season. We remember Wendell Scott today. He drove during the Jim Crow era of segregation and was the first African-American to win a race at NASCAR's elite major league level. His family was his racing team. They would travel to races together from their home in Virginia, and his sons served as his pit crew. Wendell Scott died in 1990. His son Frank and grandson Warwick sat down to remember him for StoryCorps. He started racing in 1952, and, you know, it was like Picasso 
like a great artist doing his work. He was in that car, he was doing his work. And as children, we didn't have that leisure time. You know, we couldn't go to the playground. He said to us, I need you at the garage. I can remember him getting injured, and he'd just take axle grease and put it in the cut and keep working. But he wasn't allowed to race at certain speedways. He had death threats not to come to Atlanta. And they had to say, look, if I leave in a pine box, that's what I got to do, but I'm going to race. I can remember him racing in Jacksonville, and he beat them all. But they wouldn't drop the checkered flag. And then when they did drop the checkered flag, they had my father in third place. One of the main reasons that they gave was there was a white beauty queen, and they always kissed the driver. Did he ever consider not racing anymore? Never. That was one of my daddy's saying. When it's too tough, everybody else is just right for me. Like I can remember one time when uh, we were racing Atlanta 500, and um, he was sick. He needed an operation. And I said, Daddy, we don't have to race today. He whispered to me and said, lift my legs up and put me in the car. So I took my arms and put behind his legs, and I kind of act like I was hugging him and help him in the car. He drove 500 miles that day. How did his racing career officially end? Well, <laughs> finances. You know, he couldn't get the support where other drivers that we were competing against had major sponsorship, providing them engineers, as many cars as they needed. He did everything that he did out of his own pocket. He always felt like someday he's going to get his big break. But uh, for 20 years, nobody mentioned Wendell Scott. At one point, it was like he never existed. But he didn't let it drive him crazy. I think that's what made him so great. Uh, he chose to be a race car driver, and he was going to race until he couldn't race no more. Frank and Warwick Scott for StoryCorps. Their conversation is archived at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new report says the Great Salt Lake in Utah could dry up within five years. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Pentagon says it believes a high-altitude surveillance balloon spotted over the continental U.S. belongs to China. Officials say it poses no threat to commercial aircraft and wasn't shot down because of concerns about falling debris and people on the ground. At one point, the balloon was seen over Montana, which is home to a nuclear missile silo field. In Beijing, a spokeswoman for China's foreign ministry, Mao Ning, would neither confirm nor deny the balloon is China's. She's heard here through a BBC interpreter. I have noted relevant reports. We are gathering and verifying the facts. I would like to stress that before it becomes clear what happened, deliberate speculation or hyping up will not help handling the matter. It's not clear how the incident might affect Secretary of State Antony Blinken's upcoming trip to China. House Democrats say yesterday's party-line vote to oust Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota from the Foreign Affairs Committee was politically motivated. Republicans deny that. They say the vote to remove Omar was in response to her past comments about Israel, criticized as anti-Semitic, for which Omar has apologized. Authorities in New Jersey say they've yet to make an arrest following the slaying of a Republican councilwoman in Sayreville, who was found shot to death in an SUV. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There's no sugarcoating it. It's going to get really cold today. Temperatures are almost still in the 20s now, but will fall to the single digits by this afternoon. Tonight, it will drop below zero, and wind chills could hit 30 below. It's going to stay cold throughout the day tomorrow. This weather will, of course, be tough on people experiencing homelessness. Governor Moore Healy says she's been t- in touch with service groups. We, of course, encourage people to go to shelters to take advantage of, uh, of shelters, and there will be, I know, through our service providers, uh, transportation available to get people there. South Station in Boston will also be open Friday and Saturday night for people to shelter in place. The number of COVID infections in Boston is going down. Data show COVID particles and wastewater are down 33 percent over the past two weeks. Alston, Mattapan, and Roxbury still have an above-average number of COVID infections. Statewide infection numbers are also down. The outgoing Boston Senior Advisor of Public Safety says the people carrying guns in the city are getting younger and they're using higher-capacity firearms. Today is the last day on the job for Rufus Falk. He's held the job since 2018. He says even though crime went down overall during his tenure, things haven't improved for people in neighborhoods most impacted by violence. Even though the numbers might be speaking to a decline, your reality and your perception is that it's the same old, same old. So I think as a community, we have to recognize the experiences of those individuals who disproportionately been been impacted by gun and gang violence. He's being succeeded by his friend and mentee, Isaac Yablo. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. 
PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics take on the Phoenix Suns tonight at the Garden and your forecast. Bundle up and be prepared to stay that way until Sunday. Temperatures fall throughout the day to about 7 degrees by 5 p.m. High winds will make it feel like negative 14. Tonight, a low of negative 6, and it'll feel like negative 30. Tomorrow, sunny with a high in the mid-teens, but it'll still feel like negative 30. Mostly cloudy in mid-40s on Sunday. Right now, it's 20 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Folden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. A popular 19th century book describes the Great Salt Lake. In the 1840s, that lake was well known to local people, but not on the East Coast. The Western mapmaker John Charles Fremont described boating on the lake to an island. He accidentally left the cover to his spyglass on that island and mused that some future explorer might find it. Unless something changes, future explorers of that island may be able to walk there because the lake is drying up. A report says climate change and population growth in Utah may destroy it in five years. NPR's Kirk Sigler takes us there. The Great Salt Lake is the largest remaining saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere. Now, trekking along its receding shoreline, especially if it's the dead of winter, can feel eerie and lonely. These might even be my footprints from last week. Carly Beadle is a biologist with the Great Salt Lake Institute. She's bundled up in an orange puffy jacket, gloves and hat, and most importantly, she's wearing thick, sturdy rubber boots. The mud with the frozen, slick layer of ice on top gets treacherous. The only thing we're not really prepared for is the stench. This is pungent right here. (laughs) Yeah. It's like dead fish. (laughs) The stink is a sign of a biologically healthy saline lake. People have been saying that they miss the lake stink because it just makes them feel like home and it's just not here anymore. So you're lucky that it gets to smell so bad. It doesn't really stink anymore because it's drying and dying. Beetle hikes out here weekly trying to collect samples of brine fly larvae, which are getting harder and harder to find. I'm going to get my jar out. The brine flies are at the bottom of the food chain, feed for the brine shrimp, which sustain the migrating birds, and so on. Most of the water that's left here is too salty now. The threshold is, we're kind of at the threshold, so if things get any saltier, we're super, super worried. So what brought us to this brink? Well, two decades of a western mega drought and water diversions from rivers upstream for farms and suburbs. Yeah, sorry, this is our crossing point. Now, if this lake goes away, just the economic fallout alone is dizzying from brine shrimp fishing to mining to Utah's ski resorts that benefit from extra lake effect snow. And then there's the pollution. The inversions here in the winter that we get just from being in the valley is already a big problem. And so having this other, this other piece of the dust coming in really scares people. Partly because of those inversions, Salt Lake City already can have some of the dirtiest air in the U.S. 
and the lake bed has high concentrations of mercury and arsenic. If the lake bed dries up and we're having winds blowing dust storms into our neighborhood, the heavy metals are going to land right on top of this neighborhood. Turner Bitten is a community activist in Salt Lake City's West Valley. These more working-class neighborhoods are already hemmed in by busy freeways, an international airport, and Utah's largest oil refinery. I mean, we're, we're talking about something that could potentially make these neighborhoods, I don't want to say uninhabitable, but for those that are vulnerable, for those that have lung issues, uh, uninhabitable. He's not being dramatic. Researchers have found higher rates of asthma and cardiovascular disease in neighborhoods like these. And one University of Utah study even showed that students in schools here scored lower on tests during bad air days. Dr. Brian Minch is president of Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment. He says the state should have declared an emergency years ago. A lot of people think that dust is pretty benign because it's, quote, natural. Well, that's not the case. And in the, in the case of dust from the Great Salt Lake, it is particularly toxic because we know that it's laced with high concentrations of heavy metals. And most of Utah's three million or so residents live just east of the lake along the Wasatch Mountains. The lake is about nine feet lower than normal right now, and locals are already complaining of dust storms. The crisis is all over the mainstream news here. And you know, even with all of this snow, Utah still remains in a drought. Yeah, Not what some tonight are calling a looming environmental nuclear bomb in Utah. The mighty Great Salt Lake is drying up. And as, as the great at the state capitol, lawmakers this session are under pressure to save the lake. Some ideas floated sound like sci-fi, cloud seeding, even a pipeline to pump Pacific Ocean water in. Right now, lawmakers are debating a half-billion-dollar package that would do things like pay farmers and cities to use less water. Here's Republican Governor Spencer Cox in his recent State of the State address. Earlier this month, a report predicted that in just five short years, the Great Salt Lake will completely disappear. Let me be absolutely clear. We are not going to let that happen. Now, from up here on Capitol Hill, there's a sweeping view of the Salt Lake City skyline. And when you look to the west, past the airport, there's the receding gray lake shimmering at dusk. It's an ominous sight, but hard for lawmakers to ignore. We could see the reflection of the, of the mountains on the water. It's really pretty right now. Now, for her part, down at the lake, biologist Carly Beetle is keeping positive. And that's kind of what we've been trying to do, is find these moments to see the beauty when it's, it's so sad. It's sad because Beetle says there's very little time left to save this lake. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Salt Lake City. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Ahead on Morning Edition, why some Democratic leaders nationwide are adopting a Republican strategy of busing migrants away from the southern border. But first, we're talking about the extremely cold weather headed our way, and we're joined now by WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Good morning, Danielle. Hey, good morning, Rupa. Great to be with you. Thanks for being here. So it's relatively warm this morning. When are temperatures really going to start plummeting? Uh, don't let it fool you out there right now because you're absolutely right. The Arctic front is actually crossing the region right now. So our temperatures are only going to continue to fall throughout the day today. We'll be in the teens much of the afternoon and then in the single digits by the time we get to this evening, which is obviously cold. But the big factor is going to be the wind today that makes it feel that much colder. How brutal. How brutal will it get tonight? Mm. 
20 to 30 below zero region wide. Uh, parts of northern New England will probably feel like 40 below zero. So that's why we've got the wind chill warning that's in effect for everybody from this evening until about midday tomorrow. So that's the period where it's the dangerous stuff, where you can get frostbite in as little as 15 or 30 minutes. So the deep freeze, you expect it all day tomorrow? All day tomorrow, although the dangerous wind chill values will be until about noon. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's still going to be very cold tomorrow. The high will only be about 16 in Boston. And in the afternoon, the wind chill will be in the single digits. So it does improve, you know, slightly over that dangerous level from this evening till tomorrow midday. Um, but it's just a huge turnaround by Sunday. How rare is it for us to get weather this cold? And without getting too technical, what causes it to get this cold? So, you know, you think of the polar vortex, right? I feel like several years ago, that was, you know, a, a bigger word. We used it all the time. And frankly, we haven't had air this cold since 2016. We, so it's been seven years, right? Uh, February 13th and 14th of 2016, we were minus four and minus nine degrees in Boston. We broke records. Um, in the past decade in Boston, we've only hit below zero, I think it's six times. So it is pretty rare, um, but a little chunk, a little piece of that polar vortex essentially has dislodged uh, from the poles and it sends a little chunk of, you know, anomalously cold air kind of shooting down from it. So it's not like this is a several day thing where we get a huge area of Arctic cold. It's just a little piece of the polar vortex that is kind of ejecting south pretty quickly here. That wasn't too technical. And then by Sunday, <laughs> we'll all be wearing shorts, right? How, how are we making this turnaround? What does it do to our environment when we have this like abrupt, fast turnaround? Isn't it crazy, right? I mean, by Sunday, we'll be in the mid uh, 40s. So really remarkable, actually, to see a turnaround uh, like that. It's going to be really cold on Sunday morning, but then we, you know, we rebound really nicely and we'll be in the 40s much of next week. So it's kind of what I talked about. A little piece of the cold air comes down, but then the jet stream quickly returns northward, which puts us on the warmer side again. So, you know, obviously there can be implications, um, you know, on our environment. And I think it's one of those scenarios where we're glad that the cold air isn't here for a while, but it, it keeps us questioning what's going on with Mother Nature here and, and you know, climate change. I'd say. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce, thanks so much for joining us. Stay warm. You too. Thanks, Rupa. Talk of this extremely cold weather has some people worried about protecting their homes, especially their pipes. A burst frozen pipe can cause a mess, and in this weather, will take a while to get fixed. Not to mention, it'll be expensive. Fred Webster is the owner of Milltown Plumbing, Heating, and Electrical in Chelmsford. He says there are some easy steps you can take to reduce the chance of frozen pipes. You want to make sure that you brought all your hoses in, you shut off your outside faucets, and if you can shut a valve off inside of the house and open it on the outside to drain any water out, that's always a great thing to do as well. Another common thing that is a problem area for folks is kitchen sinks are often in an outside wall. It's a good idea to remember to keep the cabinet doors open, try to get some heat under there. Um, some folks say, you know, you can let the, the, the faucet drip, which will help it from freezing. A lot of people, me included, are going to want to stay inside through Sunday, but that's not always realistic for people who need to catch a bus or the T. And for drivers, cranking that heat will only help to a certain point. Mary McGuire with AAA Northeast has some advice on preparing your car for the weather. 
to make sure that you've checked your battery. If your battery is five years old or older, it could be at risk of dying. You want to make sure that you've checked your tires uh, to make sure they're properly inflated. That's very important for safety. And finally, you want to make sure that you're packing a winter emergency kit that has essentials such as jumper cables, de-icer, a flashlight, and snacks and water and warm blankets and clothing. In case it makes you feel better, it'll be a lot colder at the top of New England's highest peak. Francis Terazowitz is a meteorologist on the Mount Washington Observatory. He says wind chills there could reach 100 degrees below zero tonight. So with temperatures like that and wind chills like that, exposed skin will become frostbitten in less than a minute. Um, So uh, definitely making sure that, you know, there's no exposed skin um, and double and triple checking um, that everything is covering uh, your face and extremities uh, in these types of temperatures. New Hampshire wildlife officials are recommending you skip that hike in the White Mountains this weekend. It's 19 degrees in Boston at 846. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. When Texas and Arizona's Republican governors began busing immigrants out of their states last year, they said it was in protest of the Democrats' federal immigration policies. At the time, Democrats railed against the practice, especially when migrants were misled about where they were going. Now, NPR's Laura Benshoff reports on why some Democrats have adopted busing, too. It's cold, dark, and very early when buses from the southern border pull up in Philadelphia. It's one of the cities led by Democrats where Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been dropping off immigrants. City and nonprofit staff greet the passengers. Some shuffle onto a waiting city bus where there are blankets and hot coffee. A woman named Selena is not done traveling yet, though she already had a very long ride. NPR has agreed not to use her full name because her immigration case is pending. She's Dominican, but had been living in Chile. Selena says she took this bus because she didn't know it otherwise would have cost her 500 bucks to get here from the border. Now she's got one more bus to catch to meet her brother-in-law in New Jersey. When these trips started last year, Republicans like Abbott said they were just responding to the quote-unquote reckless border policies. Democrats criticized the tactic as dehumanizing to migrants and chaotic for the receiving cities. But Muzaffar Chishti, a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, says people have always traveled within the U.S. once they apply for asylum at the border. People would typically move to a family connection or to a business connection, and they would send them a bus ticket from the border town to come and travel. But in 2022, Customs and Border Protection encountered a record number of people trying to come to the U.S. While many were expelled, the nonprofits and aid groups at the border had trouble meeting basic needs for all of the arrivals. Chishti says while busing was originally viewed as a political response, that started to change. Something that looked like a punitive thing towards immigrants, done for political gains, suddenly turned itself on their head because migrants are rational people. They realize, my God, this is actually a free ticket. Busing, it turns out, can be helpful to migrants and border communities. Cities and states led by Democrats started joining in with some tweaks. In December, thousands of people from the border started showing up in Denver, 
We had no indication this was going to happen. Josh Rosenblum is a city spokesperson. Denver set up shelters, but that month it also bought individual bus tickets for 1,900 people, helping them get to 35 states. Here's Rosenblum again. It goes along with food and shelter and clothes and toiletries. Those bus tickets are part of this huge humanitarian effort. But the politics are still tricky. Colorado's Democratic governor started chartering buses from Denver to other cities. But the mayors of Chicago and New York asked him to stop, saying they were already overburdened. In Arizona, the new Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, says she's going to keep but update the busing program started by her Republican predecessor. I think we need to look at that practice and make sure that it's effective. If we're spending the money to bus people, why not just get them to their final destination? She may have time to work on that update. Preliminary federal data show a drop in the number of people crossing into the U.S. so far this year. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Philadelphia. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm WBUR Weekend host Sharon Brody. Let's talk about connections and how great they are. Connections like the love you share with your best friend, your grandparents, your grown-up kid, the person your grown-up kid marries who reminds your grown-up kid to maybe respond to mama's texts. I mean, just to take it for instance. And alongside maintaining connections, Another great life activity is subverting the dominant paradigm. So here's an idea. Maybe try a less conventional approach to which people you celebrate this Valentine's Day. You could surprise a loved one with some unexpected recognition. These are the people who make your heart sing. You can send them Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll help us tell stories that keep us all connected. It's really easy to do. Just go to WBUR.org. And thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, sharing Sherpa with Robert Beer, opening Saturday. Plan your visit at PEM.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The government just reported an unexpected surge in hiring the month just ended. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. I'm David Brancaccio. You can't keep a good labor market down. There's word just now that 517,000 more people were on payrolls in January. That's almost three times higher than expected. The unemployment rate fell further to 3.4 percent, the lowest since 1969. For those looking for work, that is very encouraging news. For people worried about higher interest rates ahead, this may be concerning. But we also need to look under the hood because statistics are at play. Economist Julia Coronado, founder and president of Macro Policy Perspectives, has read through today's report and joins us live here. Good morning. Good morning. Well, headline is, it's nice. It's great. It's a fantastic report, a strong, a strong labor market. All right. So it looks like a surge in hiring, but is it really asking for a reason? Right, right. The January report, January is a month of layoffs in industries like retail and construction after the holidays and during the winter months. 
what we're seeing is that those layoffs are smaller than usual. So on a seasonally adjusted basis, we're seeing a surge in hiring. So there's some noise in this data. Some noise in this data, but the other, that's the calculating by adding up payrolls. They also go house to house and ask people, are you employed? Or are you looking for work? The household survey yields the unemployment rate down to 3.4% from 3.5%, less noise there. Less noise there. That's a real number. And basically, we are in a labor market where if you want a job, you can find a job. And that's, that's great news. Economist Julia Coronado also teaches at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Apple stock is down nearly 2% in pre-market trading now after the company's sales and profits were less than expected for last quarter. Slower economic growth and a high dollar are part of it. Amazon stock down more than 6%. Google Alphabet down more than 4%. NASDAQ futures are down 1.6% now. That's where a lot of the tech stocks live after that index went up more than 3% yesterday. S&P futures are now down 9 tenths percent. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is pushing to limit late fees on credit cards. The agency wants to lower the cap from $30 for a first-time tardiness incident to just $8. This would add up. Here's Marketplace's Savannah Marr. This proposed limit is part of the CFPB's broader campaign to crack down on what it calls junk fees, says Ted Rossman, an analyst with Bankrate. Fees that are maybe excessive in light of the value received. Like a $30 charge for paying your credit card bill a day late. Did the credit card company really lose $30 or is this more of a profit center? The new proposed rule is meant to keep fees in line with actual debt collection costs. But Karen Petru, a managing partner at Federal Financial Analytics, says companies will find ways to make up that lost revenue. I think they could be replaced by a lot of fees And she says the change could limit credit access. Companies might just stop offering cards to customers more likely to be late. According to the CFPB, late fees disproportionately burden customers living in low-income and majority Black neighborhoods. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Sony Pictures Classics. Turn Every Page, a film by Lizzie Gottlieb, about the 50-year relationship between writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb, now in theaters. The U.S. government is tracking what's described as a Chinese spy balloon, which was over Montana. The Pentagon says it's taken steps to be sure it doesn't collect sensitive info and that the military has seen these from China before. They do have the ability to pop the thing, but the Pentagon says it doesn't want falling debris. This comes just ahead of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to China this weekend for meetings with top government officials there, where security and trade and business issues will come up. Marketplace's Jennifer Pack reports from Shanghai. Movie producer Sean Yue has offices in both Beijing and L.A. because he wants more China-Hollywood co-productions. I can hire more American workers to work on my projects. I can use the pre-existing Hollywood infrastructure. But last year, he laid off almost all his staff in L.A. and New York because of U.S.-China tensions. Because currently everything is uncertain. Everything is up in the air. So as a business person, I don't really know, should I invest or should I downsize? 2022 was a tough year. 
China's zero-COVID lockdowns upended global supply chains. There's Russia's war in Ukraine. Tensions are up over Taiwan. And both the U.S. and China want the other side to back off. Scott Kennedy is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Beijing and Washington would like there to be a floor placed under the relationship where the prospects of open armed conflict are much, much lower. China also wants the U.S. to drop its tariffs on Chinese products and rescind export controls to buy advanced American semiconductors, something that's bound to come up during U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China. Xu Qingduo is with the Beijing-based think tank Pangol Institution. This is the Chinese view that, oh, the U.S. is trying to contain us to slow down the rise of China. If true, the U.S. won't succeed, he says, especially now that Chinese leaders have dropped COVID restrictions and reopened China. Probably one of the brightest spots in terms of uh, economic expansion and investment. As for movie producer Sean Yue, he says he wants to revive his U.S. operations again. He's keeping close watch on Blinken's visit. I just wish that Blinken and uh, his counterparts in China can figure out a way to let us have the certainty. Certainty that the U.S. welcomes Chinese investment. Again, analyst Scott Kennedy. I think the question is, can the U.S. and China walk and chew gum at the same time? Can they compete vociferously in certain areas? Like in high tech. And find a way to cooperate on common challenges they face, whether it's the climate or public health. But these days, it's hard to separate politics from everything else, especially from business. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. Marketplace's digital producer is Jared Dang. Our engineers are Jason Duller and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be sunny today with temperatures falling to the single digits by late afternoon. With the wind, it's going to feel like negative 14. That's during the day. Tonight, it could feel like 30 below. Tomorrow, sunny with the wind still making it feel like negative 30. Sunday, mostly cloudy and a warm-up to the mid-40s. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. How do you find deep happiness? Researcher Dacher Keltner says, find awe. Awe, as powerfully as any state you can pinpoint, shifts you to being open and engaged and curious about the world. The science behind why we all need to seek and experience more awe. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.